Hello, everyone, and welcome to Evolving ABA. I am Dr. Nasia Serencioni Ulazi, and today, my goodness, do I have a treat for us all. Joining us today is Dr. Richard Spates. He's going to have an opportunity to speak with us in just a moment. But first, hello, Dr. Spates. Good morning to you. <laughs> Good morning. It's good to be with you. Thank you so much. I just want to take this opportunity, one, to thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing uh, to come and share. And before we begin sharing, I just want to take this opportunity to share a bit about who you are. Is that okay? That's perfectly okay. Awesome. Awesome. Everybody, I had the absolute pleasure of meeting Dr. Spates in Michigan, in Detroit, um, while we were both attending the um, second annual Black Behavior Analyst Conference. Um, and my goodness, what an exquisite human being. You know, I am going to, in a minute, share some of Dr. Spates's accolades um, in a minute, but I really want to acknowledge you, Dr. Spates, for who you are. I think I've shared with so many people, I've had an opportunity to meet you, and typically the first thing they say when they know you is, oh, Dr. Spates, he is so nice. Oh, what a wonderful, that, that happens every time, and when I got a chance to get in your presence, I experienced that. You know, That's very kind of you. It's, and, and it's true. It's true. It's authentic. So, Dr. Spates was born, and this is near and dear to my heart, in Jackson, Mississippi. That's where my family is from Hollandale, but I know Mississippi well. So, Dr. Spates was born in Jackson, Mississippi, raised in Bent Harbor, Michigan from childhood. And I want to have a conversation about that. Okay. Dr. Spates attended Bent Harbor High School, um, and he earned a Bachelor in Science in Psychology and a Master of Arts in Psychology from Western Michigan University. He then earned a Master of Arts in Clinical Psychology, as well as a Doctor of Philosophy in Clinical Psychology from the University of Illinois. Dr. Spates is currently a, a professor emeritus at Western Michigan University, where he served for three decades in a variety of roles, including professor, director of clinical training, and department chair. Dr. Spates is widely published in the areas of anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder and treatment, and he has delivered, and I've heard heard his delivery, uh, his presentations, but he's delivered numerous presentations and workshops, both nationally and internationally. And it is absolutely, absolutely my pleasure and my honor to present to you, Dr. Richard Spates. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So Thank glad to you. have you. <laughs> Thank you so much. And it's really a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this, this interview. And so. Awesome. Uh, awesome. So I just want to jump right in. I want to start with this piece. 
you know, this piece of you being born in Jackson, Mississippi. I didn't have anything to do with that, Nasia. It just happened. <laughs> just happened. But let me tell you, I mean, it happened and myself having roots in the deep south. And, and be clear, Mississippi is the deep south. Right. That comes with a whole world of culture, of stories. Um, and can you tell us a little bit how how you ended up, how your family ended up in Benton Harbor, Michigan from Jackson, Mississippi? Yes, yes. I, uh, I like reflecting on that time period. I've had the occasion to do so recently, talking with a friend from South Carolina, and we talk about our Southern roots in terms of value. She's known me for a long time, was in fact a colleague at Western Michigan. Um, the um, we were part of the mass migration of black people out of the South, out of the yes. Jim Crow time period. If you remember during the time period, this was the fifties, uh, the 1950s. And uh, things weren't so pretty then. There was yes. rapid change happening when I was uh, entering elementary school. Uh, uh, Medgar Evers is a name that you will remember and stuff. Yes. Uh, yes. The, the Freedom Riders coming from the North and New York and the Northeast to sort of help uh, uh, sort of released black people from the from enslavement and so forth that was happening during the time period. It was rapid change occurring, and as you as you know, I'm sure that uh, it was unsettling for many people. Uh, uh, cry as you might about the oppression that was occurring. People don't like instability. Kind of you, the devil you know versus what you don't know, and yes. people being killed and shot and. Uh, hanged and various things were occurring. Now, I was protected from the direct exposure to that by family and community and so forth. But you you, you read about it. It was on the news and so forth. Yes. So my mother's sister had already some years before met and married a man from, uh, from Michigan. Actually, he was from Louisiana originally, but they moved to Michigan. And I'm not quite sure what drew him to Michigan itself. But um, some cousins, uh, sort of, we were truly a village. We lived in the same community. I was raised by uh, aunts, uncles, grandparents, yes. and, and yes. immediate uh, family as well. There were eyes everywhere uh, as I was growing up. And that also had some shaping of my values. I, this truly is, I, yes. I think, in terms of being observed uh, <laughs> of, of those experiences. But in any case, uh, we... Uh, almost as a clan moved at the same time to to Michigan. And when many of us lived for a short time with that the aunt and uncle there before branching out into different areas. And at this point, uh, our sort of local diaspora is in Chicago, Tennessee, wow. uh, in Michigan, various places in, 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 uh, in Michigan as well. But and we'll talk perhaps in a few minutes, but the values that uh, shaped me derived from that cultural tradition and during my formative years of course that changes over time as you yes. grow, become worldly wise yourself in in many ways your own experiences yes. begin to feed into that but i will always uh, appreciate and respect and uh, honor the elderly in my family and notably my great-grandparents who spent a good bit of i spent a good bit of time with and Listen carefully to the their advice and uh, how Absolutely. they Absolutely. Dr. Spates, thank you so much. It's it's so much that I want to unpack in what you have just shared. So let me go back and I want to okay. make sure I get to all of it. You know, really that that great migration 
you know, it is so the, the story, that story of black people traveling from the south up north mm -hmm. is often not told from our perspective. Mm -hmm. sure. So we, we often underestimate what that was. You know, my son, I have a 23 year old son. And I was just sharing with him because my family did the same thing your family did. Okay, okay. Bit by bit, we made our way from Mississippi and from Alabama to Chicago, to Detroit, yes. to Pittsburgh, because that's, that's where the jobs were. That's where the jobs were. Yes. And the domestic domestic servants and that kind of thing. Yeah. That's what that's what that's where my family comes from. And I was sharing that with my son because I believe you know, in order to really know where you're going, you have to know where you come from. So Absolutely. I share those stories with my son. And it's interesting. This is what he said. His 23-year-old mind said, Mama, you know, that sounds a lot like refugees. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know. That's a term my sister, my younger sister has used before, too. She said, yeah. you sound like refugees. <laughs> yes. And because we don't often tell our own stories, there's a different narrative that sure. gets shared. You know, I have stories from my grandparents, you know, about how they had to come. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't take a flight. You didn't take a train. <laughs> right. But you got in the car. Sure. You, you the packed car. your sandwiches. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. Yep. <laughs> and you got in the car and you made it. And the way my family came. So. On my mother's side, my grandmother had to come first, and she left my mother in the care of her mother. Mm -hmm. And then on my father's side, he came. He left Alabama at the age of 21, and then he sent for his brothers and his parents. Okay. So I resonate with that. Yeah. And I can't wait to hear more about how how that that legacy unfolded for you because they came so so you could have more opportunities right. absolutely yes. Yes. yes yes so tell me more dr space so after you're here you you grow up you have these stories of the south you have these cultural traditions which what you said is so true there is a profound respect for eldership and mm -hmm. as I am in my junior elder years, mm -hmm. I appreciate, I greatly appreciate that part of our culture. There's yeah. respect for those who have come before us. Tell me about sure, that. Sure, sure. And, you know, it's a like for, with most children, and as you just mentioned with your son, it's a learned respect. It's something that you acquire over time. It becomes valid. It's not an immediate, it's not in my blood necessarily that, oh, they're older and therefore I should respect them. But through a system of both contingencies that you and I talk about in behavior analysis <laughs> and uh, over time your own emerging wisdom sort of fuses with what you are hearing around you yes. down to the point where actually my sister my uh, elder sister and I older sister I should say she's also elder <laughs> but yes. uh, uh, we we were around our grandparents and other people so often and when they referred to for example my mother they could her first name was Lois uh, we acquired that as referring to our mother, Lois, instead of mama, instead of yes. some other short period of time and stuff, off and on in that way, depending on the amount of time that we, we spent. But uh, to your point, um, the uh, value of education, in addition to the jobs being in the North, that was pounded into us. 
get as much as you can. It's another ticket out of the low income and the, and the, 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 and I'm going to say low income because it's not, uh, I didn't live in a chaotic environment as such often associate with being poor. Uh, we weren't valueless. We were, in fact, quite strong in values. It was a religious community as well, too. Our family reunion has a slogan uh, regarding the place of religion in our in our uh, lives. Um, and so the teachings about those sort of edicts of get as much education as you can, uh, um, blame others as little as possible for the circumstances that you've find yourself in keep your eyes on the prize uh try to minimize distractions from the prize you can't solve everything around you but do what you can but keep your eyes on the goals and reset goals once you once you meet horizons became very clear messages to me and there was humor built around it there was uh uh, and seriousness as well too but even in day-to-day chores chopping wood or something uh uh, my wow. grandmother used to say to me that, boy, you're going to be either real lazy or real smart. <laughs> I would try to get as much done as I could. I come in with two loads of, of wood uh, from from uh, chopping it so she could cook and, and uh, uh, wow. eat the house and so forth. But then I'm not sure which one turned out if I'm lazy or. or <laughs> well, we we both know I, I say brilliant. I say brilliant. You That's you are nice brilliant, Dr. Spates. And I appreciate your brilliance. And more than that, I appreciate your willingness to share because you just you're dropping gems right now that I'm so grateful for. Mm. You know, something you have shared with me, and I think it goes along with what you just said, you know, the messaging that you got as a young person growing up. I know that you completed an undergraduate degree. In, in two short years, you know, today people can't complete an undergraduate degree in, in five, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. you managed to complete it in two. Tell me about that, because I have a feeling it plays into, you know, just everything you've just shared. What was your motivation yeah, for completing yeah. that program so quickly? Sure. You know, I th- I'd have to go back with a little bit of history on that, too, because and, and you're right, it does tie into the education emphasis. When I was in preschool, we didn't call it preschool at the time, but it was in a house that was run by a teacher and it had a kindergarten and a pre-kindergarten kind of a program. And I was uh, in that program and about I don't know if it was mid-year, but at some point in the year, she told my mother that I think we need to put him in the kindergarten class because his learning style is much different than the rest of the kids. He's not doing uh, readiness type things. He's beyond that. So they moved me into the kindergarten. And I remember this event. I remember a graduation ceremony from kindergarten to first grade. I remember it vividly. I was so proud. We had white graduation gowns and caps and so forth. And we marked, it was held in a church and we marched across the street to the grounds of the school to take photographs. I don't have any of the photographs. I wish I did in, yes. in telling this story, but uh, that had a profound effect. It was, it was, um, kind of ritual that cemented some of the messaging about education, even at that age. Yes. Uh, see, that happened again in fifth grade. Now, I told you, I shared with you, I think, at breakfast or someplace uh, in Detroit that uh, my fourth grade teacher told my mother that I shouldn't go to middle school, junior high school, we called it at the time, yes. because I stuttered so badly yes. and I wouldn't make it. 
so well if, if I uh, went there. The very next year, I was promoted again mid-year from, from, from fifth grade to sixth grade. Uh, because of my academic, my my uh, academic work, and I I loved I always loved studying. I love friends as well too, but studying was clearly a priority for me. Wow! Fast forwarding to um, the period that you're you're referencing of the uh, two years. It's actually two years in a semester, so I want to correct that. <laughs> <laughs> two years in a semester, we will take it. How did you do it? We need to know. Um, you know, when I when I uh, I benefited so much. I mean, it's almost unspeakable how much I was in the one of the first upward bound programs in the nation at Western Michigan University on campus. It's about fifty miles from Benton Harbor, wow. where I went to high school. And actually, Condoleezza Rice was at the Stanford uh, upward bound program during and around the same time. We were pretty close uh, uh, age wise. I didn't know about the Stanford program until I wow. read a bio about her at some point. I said, can, can I add something too? Sure, sure. I did not know that. You know, I was an upward bound student. As Get well. out of here. <laughs> I was at Lewis University right here oh. in Romeoville, Illinois. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I didn't know that. Huh? Oh, it's amazing okay. that you discovered just from Absolutely. talking to people. Talking I, is amazing. It so. sure is. Yeah. So please tell us yeah. more, Dr. Space. So I, uh, I, I ended up uh, getting a full tuition scholarship and a uh, half-time research assistantship and was paid quite well, like $20 an hour in those days, 1968, Okay. for working in the behavior research lab on Western's campus. And that lab was directed by Dr. Roger Ulrich, who was a research professor, a distinguished position at the university at the time. He had achieved just immense stuff in his work on uh, non-human aggression. My job with the research assistantship was to, uh, it, it was a, a, a graduated approach in terms of levels of responsibility, but it started out the cleaning cages for the animals and then running the animals in experiments and then taking data on the animals and then reporting to the sub-research group and then to the broader group. And that experience itself uh, meant that I had to be around between semesters. I had to be around over holidays. And there were I, there was a bevy of us uh, undergraduates who were involved in the lab. Roger believed very strongly in the apprenticeship model of training. That is, more senior students uh, helping the younger trainees all the way up to him working yes. with the more senior graduate students and stuff. He, he wrote about it in a paper called The Apprenticeship Model of Psychology Training back in those days. Uh, and I became a, a true believer in that because as I, as I rose through the ranks, I began to be mentored by him more directly in terms of traveling around the country, consultancies, conferences, observing and then presenting and then bringing other people along with me. Now back to the two year issue, my tuition scholarship afforded me basically unlimited course access. I could take as many credit hours as I wanted to. That's the difference between today and back in wow, the day. Yes. And so I would take a full load of classes, an overload of classes, because I loved studying. And I also went to school year round. I remember Upward Bound. I was in school year round since following my ninth, my 10th grade uh enrollment in school. So going to school year round, I didn't have summer breaks and stuff. It was normal for me to do that. In addition to that, the university was granting me the opportunity through the tuition to not have to do loans and the, the cumbersome things that yes. students have to do today. So put all that together uh, in that two years and a semester, it was quite exciting. I loved libraries and bookstores. 
uh, Benton Harbor had a few. I read just about every book in the Benton Harbor Library so by wow. the time I came to college, at least in fields that interested me. Yeah. And so um, it was, I, I don't, your question was about my motivation for doing yes. so. Yes, There's only one piece of that that has to do with motivation. That goes back to the messaging. The rest were circumstances that made it sort of, I won't say easy, but it made it uh, accommodating for me. Uh, part of the financial accommodation that I that I mentioned to you, I could afford it. I had the research assistantship and I had the tuition already covered. So I didn't have to go back home to work in the summer to find a job irrelevant to psychology. And it was all related to psychology and my interests, my academic interest areas. Yes. Uh, the messaging part of that was the elders in the family said, get as much education as you can. But the sub sort of Part of that was and get it as soon as you can because things don't always stay the same doors wow. open and doors close and wow. we don't know when things are going to close again it's as if they had premonitions about our the, the future of the country witness yes. roe versus wade the law doesn't mean it's the law that it's forever and always it means things can change and that sense of urgency yes. not in a necessarily a high blood pressure rising sort of a way but an awareness that mm -hmm. What seems permanent may not be. Everything is transitional. And so that was pressing on me at the time as well. Uh, one of my uncles, my mother's oldest brother, mm -hmm. uh, was big on that point that uh, things may be good for a period, but don't feel like it turns into a uh, a God-given right that will yes. always be placed and stuff, particularly in this world. And remember, you're in my history coming from the South. Yes. Right? Things can change quickly. And so I had that sense of urgency about me. But again, I had no notion. This was not a premonition that I'm going to be the first. I'm going to race to do things. Actually, there's one other student who was also in the Upward Bound program. He went on to become a lawyer, Robert McCoy, in the Ann Arbor area. He did the same thing, actually. And Robert and I didn't, we weren't close, close friends. We knew each other. It turns out we were both from Benton Harbor. But uh, he went his way and I went my way. And uh, we haven't crossed paths after then. But uh the, I, I don't know his story about uh, the want to, desire to do that other than he yes. also probably at some point enjoyed academics. Wow. So I can't claim credit for uh, thinking ahead in that sense for, from a motivational point of view, but certainly motivation is involved. You're right to, to talk about it in that sense, but the motivation had to do with a paycheck coming in, tuition being yes. free, and uh, the push the values question. So. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sure, um, that sure. definitely provides a lot of context. And I just appreciate you sharing. You know, I'm very curious with your background and upbringing. Why psychology, Dr. Spates? Mm. Why yeah, psychology? Yeah. Sure, sure. I Before psychology, I thought I wanted to be a real estate broker. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. You might say, well, that's curious. Yeah. <laughs> the deal is, uh, when back to the South again, uh, I remember the rent man coming around and the paperwork coming around, and they all had lots of money in their hands when they were giving change. You, you pay the rent, and they had rolls of money and stuff. And I thought, wow, uh, I could be a, a rent man. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a six-year-old talking about. <laughs> and uh that stayed with me for a little while. And when I said I read every book in the Benton Harbor Library, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But I did read all the real estate related books about brokerage. That's how I knew the difference between okay. a real estate salesman, a broker, and investor. And okay. All that stuff. 
Um, I had an experience when I was in the upper bound program, as you know, they tried to sort of pair you with, and uh, if you had an interest in something, to connect you with some professionals in the area of who were doing that sometimes. Uh, and uh, my tutor resident did that uh, with me one summer. I think it was my second summer. I met a, a realtor in town, and I was generally unimpressed with his personality, actually. He was sort of uh, unspoken, not spoken. He wasn't unkind or anything, but I, he didn't provide a lot of in enthusiasm to like he was kind of half interested in talking to me as a favor to somebody else and that sort yes. of thing so uh, it wasn't discouraging enough to immediately cause me to drop an interest in that area but that same summer I took a course in introduction to psychology mm -hmm. uh, at Western Michigan and um, I was aware enough at that time that Western Michigan was a an evolving program emerging program in behavior analysis with an emphasis in, in behavior analysis with a massive change in faculty who had been there, traditional faculty who had been in, in the department. When Roger Ulrich came in as department chair, actually department head, they called him at the time, he had the authority to change the Department of Psychology in, in, uh, with a broad sweep kind of ways. And he did to the chagrin of people who were let go uh, yes. and to the joy of people who he was bringing from UCLA and Kansas, wow. and various other places who had more of a behavioral orientation that got known, not just around the university, but some of my teachers in high school were aware of that rapid change. They had been psychology minors or something of that sort and talked about that. Um, so I was aware of that kind of enthusiasm of a new breed of psychology department. Uh, wow. And I was also aware that I was in a class because it, this was occurring in 1966. And while that was the first year I had come to Western, I didn't take psychology at the time, but uh, I was aware of the emerging nature of the program and the enthusiasm of the time uh, of this new approach to psychology. Okay. okay. I took the intro to psychology class and the approach to teaching very much fit with what I had experienced in biology, my other love, uh, academic. Yes, yes. And the approach to biology was a new curriculum method called biological sciences curriculum study that uh, biology teachers in high school had uh, gone to Colorado and they talked about it and very experiential, very discovery oriented. And I can't tell you how much that uh, discovery oriented experiential nature of doing science stuck with me through my entire career and it was part of what my love for science and love for psychology uh, as a natural science uh, yes. uh, has stayed with me and much of my research has been this discovery approach uh, as opposed to justifying something that I made up and trying to prove and sell yes. I think too much of our field has sort of leaned in that direction. I understand it. It's survival related, lots of money to be made on being right in terms of proving what you know is right ahead of time, whether there's any science and then using science rhetorically to, to prove and justify it. Uh, but I've always had a bit toward the discovery approach to science uh, in that respect. And so, um, but the uh, the Western Michigan intro to psychology class really persuaded me that this was the field I wanted to go into. And I went back to high school that year, taking advanced biology and psychology, combining those two to do some low level. I thought it was very important research and I had great latitude from a biology teacher to use the lab in ways that I wanted to. He just gave me wide, wide latitude. And I'm gonna, uh, 
to, to give you a chance to modify your question or to ask <laughs> other things related to it, and I don't talk for for too long on one one topic. Um, that the integration of biology and psychology was what really really turned me on. So wow, wow, that is. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. I do. I do have additional questions. So, um, people are going to be listening to our time together, and they may not know, but I'm going to share. Um, I identify as Black American, and I believe you do too, Doctor Space. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am very curious as far as your experiences, because in recent years, it's really been, the message has really been amplified that we need to do more to uh, just create experiences to invite participation from people from a wide range of backgrounds into our field. Yes, yes. Dr. Spates, they're not, they're not a ton currently of uh, black folks in the field of behavior analysis, but there's certainly more, I imagine, than there were when you initially came into the field. That's correct. Would you be willing to share with us some of those early experiences? Um, because I imagine in many circumstances, you were the only one. All the way through my retirement, I've been kind of the only one. When I've spoken at international conferences, when I uh, go to consultancies, when I do expert witness work, uh, I'm the only one in the room. And uh, with rare exceptions in that respect, the third international conference, Japanese Chinese conference on yes. uh, some topic or other, I'm giving the keynote address and I look around the room. Uh, and now in truth, I, uh, you know, we're we're different in terms of both upbringing. I mean, I don't mean you and me, but people are different in terms of upbringing and so forth. And I, I read the stories and talk to people. I've had students and folks I've mentored who experience that that phenomenon differently, differentially. Yes. Uh, a, an article by a woman recently was talking about the same kind of experience that I just uh, spoke to you about and how lonely it, 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 it felt uh, for her. But driven by the need, therefore, to do what you were just speaking of in terms of in, involving more more folks who look like us in yes. the field. Um, I have to say that in the early days, it, it, I think I, I did experience it as uh, at least, uh, loneliness is too, too broad a term. I did know, become aware that I was different in, the, in terms of the people who were in the room and all. Uh, but my focus on and, and enjoyment of the academic side of things, again, carried me in a way yes. that I didn't feel it as a deleterious effect. I understand why it would be and stuff. But uh, if you, some of that migration stuff we were talking about a minute ago, going yes. into a high school that was majority white, um, and I think my graduating class may have had 30%, 28 to 30% African-American. Yes. Uh, and um, the majority were clearly white in that case. So most of my classes were, I was also, a, a, I wasn't the only one, but I, I was a uh, minority in, in that respect. The issues back in the day, however, was that the majority was not used to Black people on college campuses and, yes. and classrooms and so forth. And so I think I shared with you at one point, 
one of my early experiences in psychology, about the third course, the third or fourth course I took, the professor one day, I had a roommate who was also a scholar, and uh, actually he had been admitted to Harvard, but decided to come to Western because he got a full full scholarship. And um, we, we studied together, but we never sat together in anticipation that somebody was going to, you know, accuse us of something or other at some point. Uh, he was in one side of the room, I was on another. But this professor, who happened to be a psychology professor, comes across one day, picks up his paper, tears it up and says, and comes over and gets mine, tears it up and says, I know you're cheating. Mm. And now our grades up to that point had been A's in the class, but we could not have earned the A's because in my mind, as this, this situation developed, because we were black in, in some oh, ways. Oh my goodness. And so we did everything. We went to the deans, went to the department chairperson. There was a Native American professor, the physiology professor in the psychology department at the time. He's long passed away, but he uh, sort of accommodated the situation and moved us to a different section and stuff. Uh, and uh, things we we moved on. That uh, that person I had a chance to interact with when I was invited to come down and join the the, the department faculty as director of clinical training. Uh, that issue never came up. I didn't raise it. I didn't put it yes. in his face and stuff. Yes. I suspect he probably remembered and and so forth. But there were a number of those kinds of experiences where. Uh, we were confronted by a system that simply was not accustomed to having Black people matriculate. Uh, and those experiences, on the other hand, while I, I wasn't necessarily feeling a inherent negative effect of being the only one in the room, I, these were negative impacts that, yes. that occurred when they tear up your paper and stuff. Or in the end, that Upper Bound program that I talked about so favorably a minute ago. Yes. In the last three or four weeks of the program, I got kicked out of the program. Did and, you? Yeah, yeah. But for reasons that were equally kind of uh, unusual in this respect, um, I had been admitted to the Honors College at Western Michigan uh, coming out of high school. They had sent me an invitation. I joined. My grades were, were good. And they'd asked me to take a course in speed reading because in college, I was going to be reading more than I'd ever read in my life. And they were right about that. Yes. Yes. And the upper bound director wanted us to take uh, all the whole group uh, a listening class. And I can understand why, you know, it's important to be able to listen, pick out the important stuff and all. But there's nothing about my background at that point that suggested that I didn't have a good rat, a good uh, repertoire with respect to that already. But leaning forward, it's clear that I was going to be reading a lot. And whatever speed of reading I had done in high school may not serve. So I said, I'm, I'm going to take the the uh, the honors college uh, recommendation. I mean, I'm I'm admitted to college the last summer of Upper Bound. I wasn't being disrespectful so much. Uh, I suppose some might call it that. But uh, he said, OK, if you do that, then you, you're out of the program. So I thought, what? Well, that doesn't seem reasonable. And I went to the dean and to tell him what happens. He, he said the same thing as I did. Why would he do that? He should be proud. He should be like, you're, you're going to add to the positive statistics of his data by, yes. by doing that, but it's his program. I can't do anything. And so I was invited to, he, he said, do you have money? And I said, well, I don't have money, but I can borrow money. My sister's in college and all that. And, I mean, she's poor too, but we yes. would help each other out when we, when we could. And so, um, he gave me the keys to a dorm. I had a big, huge dorm, multi-million dollar dorm by myself in the dark. Wow. He said, be sure and lock the doors. And for the, the next few weeks, that's what I did. And that leads to the moon pie story. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> Please uh, share uh, Dr. Space. I, uh, my grandkids laugh when I tell them this, this story. But 
I had I borrowed ten dollars or something from my my sister, and I bought that the only thing I I could think of that I could maybe exist on for that period. I bought several boxes of moon pies, these cookies with cream in the middle that, and I I uh, partitioned them out for like my meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for at least two of those those weeks, and then pizza for another two of the weeks in order to 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 live on and still go to classes and so on. Uh, it's funny now. It was a little scary at the time, but that prevented me, my point, from going back to the streets of Benton Harbor and running the streets in the summer, the rest of the summer with my, now it would have been temporary because I would have come back to college in the fall time. But uh, that's another one of those experiences that I, my sense at the time was he was, he was uh, over controlling. Yes. And I, my values, uh, coming from the South again, values are strong. Yes, <laughs> they is, are. Um stick by your principles and yes you will suffer sometimes in doing yes. so it can be costly hopefully not uh lethal yes. <laughs> in that respect and so that's a, one of those other examples and also uh, i've never really enjoyed herd mentality everybody's got to do the same thing and stuff yes. i bumped into up against that notion a number of times that I felt my own principles were being violated and stuff and not accommodated uh, appropriately. And, uh, but it is what it is. And uh, it is turned out. Okay. It, it sure did more than okay. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this, Dr. Spates, because you just talked about onlyness, mm -hmm. um, which I certainly have experienced and I've, I bring it up and write about it mm -hmm. in my work. Mm -hmm. And what I have become present to, and I've heard you talk about values throughout our time together today, mm -hmm. onlyness is up until probably a few years ago, it's an experience that I really, I survived it. Mm -hmm. I didn't thrive within it. I learned how to survive. Mm -hmm. um, and what I have come into is a clear understanding of what my values were, what yeah. my values are, what my sure. values are, and how in surviving onlyness, what I found was I was moving out of alignment with my values. Mm -hmm. So this is what would happen with me. And, and people who are close to me, I've, I've shared this with them. I've always used the term, I have measured twice and cut once before I speak. <laughs> you know, like like <laughs> you know measure yeah. twice and cut once. Meaning, it's even in the cadence and in, in, in my speaking now. Uh -huh. I learned that in environments where I am the only Black woman, now see, if you're going to say something, you better make sure it's right. Because mm -hmm. if it's not, you are going to be behaviorally punished. Mm -hmm. Your vocal verbal behaviors will be punished. Mm -hmm. That was one of the ways that I survived loneliness mm -hmm. in environments where I didn't have a lot of support. Mm -hmm. And what I found was in recent years, that was not in alignment with what my values are, mm -hmm. because I value, and I did learn this from my grandparents, mm -hmm. you know, speak up and speak to what is right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in those instances, I, I wouldn't and I understand why I was in survival mode, mm -hmm. a surviving onlyness, surviving systems that really weren't designed for me for to, you. yes. Mm -hmm. So I am curious in your ex professional experiences, 
Did you ever, were you ever moved out of alignment with your own values to survive loneliness? You know, this is this is interesting. And you and I've had brief uh, interaction around this point. And I think it's a difference between you and me in this respect. Uh, and here's what I mean. Um, you really do seem to have a concurrent or contemporary awareness of yourself that is impressive when I talk to you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I have a more outward focus in a sense of what needs doing. And I, I'm less reflective, I think, as a person than you are. I have found it refreshing to interact with you because of this concurrent self-reflectedness that you have. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't look back regretting that I didn't. I mean, we're we're different people in that respect. I've come to, as I've aged, be more like you in that yes. respect. Yes. Uh, I don't have the longer history of it. I think, and it's it's. Uh, um. I I don't know what if it would have changed or changed a trajectory or changed a way of thinking or what, but, um, that that outward, goal directed. The achievement orientation almost didn't give me time to reflect too long. And part of it, it's a little scary, frankly, yes. to to, uh, to be reflective in situations sometime, uh, at least from from my perspective of, of yes. not having been there in the way that I think it is for you. Yes. Um, in that um, I, uh, it's uncomfortable sometimes yes. to and in the middle of dealing with life as it is, it can feel like adding discomfort to uh, an otherwise also also uh, discomforting situation and stuff. And so um, I don't have a good response to your your question in that in that respect. Uh, it may have made me a stronger, better person if I had at six, seven, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 been more self-reflective in that way uh uh it i could see how it could go both ways though it might also have slowed me down the two-year one semester issue that you're yeah. referring to uh might have been four or five years and it may have not needed to take a, a break from some of the the other examples uh, many of which i haven't talked about but of events happening to me from the external world of uh, but uh, I understand your question, and it's just one of the things I've come to appreciate about you in that Thank respect, you. that I do take uh, notice and uh, appreciate you for that, because I think that it is important. Uh, and I, it, I don't think it's impossible to do both. I think you have to both have experience and learn how to do yes. both of those things. So. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, mm -hmm. What I really appreciate appreciate about what you just said is acknowledging um, that you actually do, you do need time and space for reflection. Yes. I'll call that reflective practice. And it's one of the things in my body of work, I coach 
individuals yeah. towards. Yeah. It does require time and space. It does require developing a tolerance for sitting with the mm -hmm. distressing thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations yeah. that come up when we engage in reflection. So that what you have just shared so powerfully contributes mm -hmm. to those who have taken time to listen to us today. Yeah. Reflection can be incredibly valuable. Sure. And to, to your point, absolutely. I have been trained in reflection and actively engaging in reflection as a practice for more than 30 years. Yeah, yeah, it shows. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you, Dr. Spades. Um, I really appreciate that. I have some more questions because we are rapidly, I can't, you know, we're almost at the top of the hour. Can you I didn't believe it? That. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a couple more, you know, you have, you've accomplished so much in, of our, in, in our fields. You really have. Can you share with me who have been those individuals who have most influenced you? Oh, sure, sure, happily. Um, I I always go back in the early years to my high school biology teacher, Donald Farnham. He's again passed, long passed away, but um, I attribute a good bit of my teaching style to him, as a matter of fact. But he also was the high school basketball co coach. He took the Benton Harbor Tigers to four or five state championships back in the in the day, and uh, but a, a very wise man, but a man who recognized as well uh, the learning styles of students he worked with. And uh, so both as a teacher and kind of as an exemplar, uh, Don Farnham would be somebody at an early stage I'd have to identify with. I've mentioned Roger Ulrich before. Roger was my, technically speaking, my advisor as an undergraduate, but Roger was really less of an advisor than a mentor. I wouldn't have used the term at the time because I may not have been as familiar with the concept of mentoring at the time, but Roger, under that apprenticeship model that he set up, uh, he had a powerful effect on me. I learned things that I never even knew I was learning from him, from observing the the, the idea of uh, operating a research lab, the idea of traveling and, and consulting with agencies and businesses, uh, the notion of presenting at conferences, uh, uh, observe one, uh, see one, do one, <laughs> basically, yes. was the, 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 the motto. But uh, that was steeped very much into our breeding, as, as my breeding and ours who, who were around Roger. So I, I have to give him his propers in that respect. He was an accomplished academic as well during those days. Dean Zetlow was my physics teacher in uh, uh, honors physics. Uh, and I came to college physics with no high school background in physics, but he was he stands today as one of the very best teachers I've ever had. Uh, and I liked his enthusiasm for teaching. He could teach difficult subject matter in a performance sort of way that was a combination of entertainment and uh, yet rigor and also with an eye toward looking out for the student uh, in a way that uh, he too has passed, uh, but I met him again when I came, when I finished my PhD at Illinois, and he was he was the associate dean at the time at Western, and he offered me my first post-PhD faculty position at Western, and while I didn't take it, I uh, had even more respect seeing this gentleman as he, uh, as we engaged each other, and he was disappointed that I didn't come, but he understood the state of Michigan won out in that, that uh, 
bid for post my first post PhD uh, position. Yes, those are the people who uh, Jack Michael. I have to also include as an academic teacher. Jack Michael, uh, as you know, was that perhaps you know he got his uh, degree not in psychology but in zoology at University of uh, California, Los Angeles. Yes. Came into the field. Uh, with an interest in animal behavior, and it fit quite well with the emerging experimental analysis of behavior work and uh, held a number of positions. But he was he was one of my early uh, psychology professors who his precision, his critical thought, uh, his enthusiasm for the field, he's, he had vision. Uh, and again, he's also passed uh, uh, on. But uh, those are people who come to mind uh, uh, in response to your your question, as uh, the yes. important influences on me, uh, Paul Surratt, I've, I've come to think of it. Paul Surratt was the graduate student who taught that intro to psychology class, and Paul was the one who linked me with the research assistantship in the behavior research lab from out of high school. Paul wow. had my back, and this was this is something we talk about mentorship. Uh, I could trust Paul that if whether it was opportunity or uh, looking out for for me and conversations where I wasn't present uh, it was he had a powerful effect he was one who mentored me in a sense of took me to conferences uh, uh, showed me how how things worked and so on and when I say I'd learned things that I didn't even know I was Mm. learning uh, some of the invisibility of it is that and around that lab it was just the way things worked. And so I knew how to apply to graduate school, for example, without ever learning how to apply in a, in a wow. strict sense to graduate school. I knew how to wow. publish. I had six or seven publications when I entered the University of Illinois, which was unheard of in those days. Yes. Uh, but that came from the culture of the Behavior Research Lab. And Paul Surratt was a, a big part of that uh, that mentoring process that uh, that happens. Ooh, mentorship matters. It matters. Space. It really, really does. Whether you recognize it or not, it matters. Uh, and if if you're lucky enough to to find or have it be provided, uh, I, I was just talking with a uh, former student, not my student, but somebody who she and I it sort of naturally moved into a, a mentoring mentee relationship. She graduated about four years ago. Talking to her a couple of days ago this week. And one of the questions I had for her was, uh, do they, she was negotiating a salary for an important position uh, down in Florida. And I said, do they provide for mentoring as a part of your your bargaining here and stuff? And what provisions do they have? And she said, yes, they do. And she was happy about it and stuff. And I was happy that it's coming into the professional work world. She's uh, outstanding in her the content of her work, but she's assuming some administrative responsibilities that lie a little bit outside of her experience. And so it's especially important in uh, those instances. And that was my concern that she'd get the higher salary, but uh, yes. you, you've got to have more than just the academics in order to do well in a, in a position. And turns out I got the text message, I got it, they matched me. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Now, Dr. Space, we have a couple minutes left, so I have one question. Okay. One more question. This, this, The name of this podcast is Evolving ABA, ABA Evolving. Mm-hmm. Like, like me, you have many years kind of, of history in mm-hmm. the field. Mm-hmm. Just could you share with us what do you think the field of behavior analysis analysis can look like in the next 50 years or so? 
Wow. Yeah, that's a profound question. Um, the, the, my first uh, sort of uh, hit at this will be, I'm not sure the planet's going to be around in 50 years <laughs> at the rate we're dealing with or not I dealing with you. climate change and so forth. I and hear so, you. Um, but beyond that, uh, let's assume that it that it does. Uh, I, I, and I like the way you put it, what can it be? Because uh, it's on a trajectory now that a diversification is taking place, uh, women in behavior analysis, uh, Black Association for Behavior Analysis, I see that level of diversity continuing. Uh, and it it's not taking away from behavior analysis to do that. It's adding to it. It's adding a richness yeah. to it. Uh, much like APA has many different councils and, and organizations, and they have this big conference at uh, every few years called the, the Council of something or other that uh, we all, people who are involved and have been involved in the APA governance structure yeah. go. One of them I went to was in Santa Barbara and all of them get together. It's a rich environment for the various psychologies. ABA can be like that. But one of my hopes more, uh, more local is that ABA becomes less parochial in a sense of there's a feeling among some professionals like me who've been trained in the field that uh, developmental disabilities and autism have hijacked applied behavior analysis. And in the public's mind, that's what it means is working yes. with autism. And I think behavioral science is broader than that. And I think, uh, and of course, you know that I'm a clinical psychologist with training in behavior analysis from the early days and so on. Yes. My first exposure to behavior analysis was direct instruction, uh, Becker and Engelman, accelerating the education of low income and children of color from a private elementary school. We were accelerating the education of those folks in all the basics, reading, math, science, such that some of them in elementary school were taking community college classes. But in all cases, they were several years ahead of their reading levels. The yeah. state of Michigan Department of Education came to visit us. I was program director when B.F. Skinner visited the, the program at the time. That's that's relevant. That's applied behavior analysis. That's what That was the origin of the technique, the teaching pedagogy that we were using. Uh, to limit it to developmental disabilities is to ignore a vast area. Yes. The people at University of Kansas were applying it to a number of areas outside of the what now is the the namesake for uh, ABA when insurance companies are dealing with uh, uh, developmental disabilities and various other. But even more broadly than that, I think uh, ABA has a central role to play in behavioral science more generally. And yes. I'd like to see in the next 50 years, it claim its rightful position in the behavioral yes. sciences. We should understand more about COVID, about public health, about, yes. and I was director of health education at a, a low-income community on the north side of Kalamazoo for a while. And my thinking is behavior analytic, which is as you approach hypertension, as you approach many of the problems, uh, we have graduates who've gone into health psychology and stuff. That's behavioral science with a behavior analytic orientation. And I hope in the next 50 years, we get there with respect to influencing uh, and with all of the pragmatism, all of the parsimony that is the core of behavior analysis, dispensing with all of the extra uh, look at me, I proved I'm right by yes. what I believed or some revelation that I had about something and using science as a rhetorical device to justify myself being right. I, 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 cringe at that approach so i hope we can we can shed that and keep our focus on uh, 
what I consider behavioral science uh, and behavioral practice for that matter. And we've done a good job so far. I mean, the work that ABA is doing in these areas of developmental disabilities and autism is is spectacular in that respect. Yes. Parents rave at it, uh, and I've seen the results of it myself and all. So it's not a denial of, of the importance of that, but we can do that in a whole variety of areas as well, too. Absolutely. Dr. Spates, I, I just, let me take my time here, and I want to really get this, this one right. Unfortunately, all I have right now is the word thank you, but truly, this is beyond words, what you have provided in this space to me and to those who will have an opportunity to listen. You know, you, you'll understand what I'm about to say. My, when my grandmother from Suggsville, Alabama, used to send me off to school, mm -hmm. she'd say, go get your lesson. <laughs> go get your and, and yes. <laughs> You know, what, is, what has happened here today is I got my lesson. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Dr. Spates. I, um, you know, it's beyond words, but I will say thank you with the deep bow of gratitude to you. Um, and I hope at some point you can come back because I desire for the world, you know, or at least our field to come into contact with your brilliance and all you have contributed and poured into this field. Thank you so much. It's always, as I say, I, I learn a lot when I interact with you. It's refreshing. And you've made my day again. The sun is shining <laughs> and it will, be, it will be a better day because I've interacted. with. Oh, you. So, thank you, Dr. Spates. And I am going to sign off. I'm going to sign off and hope to um, connect again soon with everyone with another episode of Evolving.